Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. We are in the midst of the three fall feast. The one upcoming is the Day of Atonement. Rick, that is also known as Yom Kippur. It was the most solemn holy day of all the Israelite feasts occurring once a year on the 10th day of Tishri, the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar. On that day, the high priest was to perform elaborate rituals to atone for the sins of the people. Described in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 to 34, the atonement ritual began with Aaron or subsequent high priest of Israel coming into the Holy of Holies. The solemnity of that day was underscored by God telling Moses to warn Aaron not to come into the most holy place whenever he felt like it. He could only come on this special day once a year, lest he die. That's verse 2 of chapter 16 of Leviticus. This was not a ceremony to be taken lightly, and the people were to understand that atonement for sin was to be done God's way. And this was a dispensational period. Talking about dispensations, Rick, today we're going to follow up on a conversation that we had months ago with Paul Scharf with our good friend, Dr. Paul Weaver. That's right, Jimmy. He'll be coming up in the second half hour, and we'll talk about a defense of traditional dispensationalism. Yes, and you're not going to believe this. He talked about an attack on dispensationalism today. It's very important, Rick. So important. The whole second half hour is going to be about dispensationalism. Well, we've got to cover all of our other news items that we examine in the light of God's prophetic word, and we need to get started, Rick. We've got Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Steve Herzig will be here talking about the three fall feasts, but let's get started with Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I've got Ken Timmerman with us. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs. He joins us just about every week. Throughout the summer, he was somewhere in Europe, but now he's back in his home state of Florida. Ken, thank you for joining with us again today. It's a pleasure and a blessing to be with you, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Well, Ken, we've got all kinds of stuff to get to, but we'll start with the U.N. General Assembly and the fact that the Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi, addressed the General Assembly. You know, Rick, it's astonishing to me and I know to many Americans that the U.S. government would tolerate, uh, would give a visa to a mass murderer to come to New York to address the U.N. General Assembly. But those are the U.N. rules. The U.N. is based in New York. Many of us believe that it would be worth uh, U.S. taxpayer money to relocate the U.N. headquarters to, let's say, Lagos in Nigeria uh, or some warmer clime. But nevertheless, Raisi was there. Uh, his chief of staff, who was also sanctioned by the United States because he was the head of the national prisons and tortured people, he was also there. And Raisi not only made claims about their desire for, quote, peaceful nuclear energy, which is a joke, but he also stood on the UN platform and uttered threats to assassinate US political leaders. I think that's got to be a first for the United Nations. Arafat uh, used to go to the UN to talk about murdering only Jews, uh, but this is really, I think, a first for an Iranian president, for any president, uh, any chief of state, to go to that UN podium and talk about murdering American politicians. What a disgrace. It certainly is, and the Israeli envoy to the UN had a special demonstration against this. Can you tell us what he did? 
hats off to Gilad Erdan. He uh, held up a large photograph of Masi Amini, the Kurdish woman whose murder in prison last year sparked this year-long series of protests in Iran. He was ushered out by United Nations security guards for having done so. Again, a double disgrace to the UN. You know, Rick, the UN General Assembly is an annual discussion club that's given birth to a lot of bad ideas. There have been uh, so many resolutions against Israel. There were 17 of them this year, only one against Iran, only one condemning North Korea, one condemning Syria, but 17 condemning the, the Jewish state of Israel. It's a globalist barbecue, uh, but this year it was really all doom and gloom. And I think even the smaller countries, the third world countries, African countries were there to acknowledge that the UN has completely failed. Here you have a member of the Security Council, Russia, that has violated the territorial sovereignty, the, the territory of another UN member, uh, Ukraine, and the UN is completely powerless to do anything about it. Another thing of note this week is that Biden was the only president of the permanent five members to show up. Macron of France didn't come. Uh, the British prime minister didn't come. Rishi Sunak, Putin didn't come and she didn't come. It was only Biden where he gave this really uh, stumbling, bumbling speech about eternal US support for Ukraine. So I really question all the attention our media spends on the UN, which has become essentially a toothless tiger. Even in the eyes of the U Europeans, the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, this week called it sclerotic and hobbled by hostile forces. That sums it up. Strong words. Well, we'll continue on. You talked a little bit about Iran and you said the fact that they are committed to a peaceful nuclear program. Well, that's probably not the case as you insinuated. In fact, uh, most people are looking at it as a pretext to a nuclear weapon of some type, and especially Israel is very concerned about that. Another nation very concerned about that, Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi crown prince said if Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon, then we need to get one too. Uh, my reaction to that is, duh. I mean, it does not take a PhD in political science to understand that reasoning on the part of the Saudis. Of course, they're going to seek a nuclear weapons capability if they see the Iranians enriching uranium up to 90 percent. And they would be guilty of malpractice as leaders if they failed to do so, Rick. Well, we have been keeping an eye on that story and talking about this Middle Eastern nuclear arms race, which is certainly concerning. Well, we also mentioned Russia and Ukraine, the Ukrainian crisis there. President Zelensky from Ukraine came, as he has uh, in the past, looking for more support, especially financial support and weapons to help him fight his war. He has been very successful in the past. Will he continue to be so successful? Uh, great doubts on that score, Rick. You know, last week I, I said he was going to come to bang his tin cup here in Washington, and, and that's exactly what he was doing. But he was not getting the same response he has gotten before. He's having a great deal of difficulty with the Republican caucus, and for a good reason. Even a supporter of the war, like Senator Josh Hawley, uh, said that the Biden administration has no strategy in their unending support for Ukraine. He says they just want money forever. So Zelensky is gonna to have to become a little bit more politically adept, more politically astute, if he wants to continue many of the Republicans in the House to support him. Of course, you've always got those Republicans who belong to what I call the uniparty of war. 
people like Nikki Haley and Mike Pence, who have said repeatedly this week that if they are elected president, they will support Ukraine and, like Biden, do whatever it takes to make sure that they win this war against Russia. Exactly how they're going to win the war, nobody seems to know. Well, let's move away from the U.N. General Assembly and let's go to Europe. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the migrant situation in Europe, especially in France, with the riots that were taking place there. Well, this week, Pope Francis went to Marseille to advocate for more open reform. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yes. Well, the Pope believes that Europe should open its doors to migrants from everywhere. And uh, he bases himself on you know many passages in the Bible which talk about welcoming the stranger. But Euro- Europeans come back, even in France, and say, you know, welcoming the stranger is fine, but uh, no, we don't want to give him the keys to the house. And no, we're not going to give him the keys to the car or to our bank accounts or to our schools. We're not going to allow him to tell us how our women are going to dress. So there really limits on what we are willing to give to these, quote, strangers. You know, France used to be called, and still calls itself in public, la fille aînée de l'église, the oldest daughter of the church. These days, that girl has become a bit of a vamp. Well, very interesting, Ken. Well, we'll move away from that situation, and let's go to China for our final question here. And there have been some military purges taking place, people even disappearing that are opposed to President Xi. What's going on there? Can you tell us what the situation is? And very high-level people disappearing. There are two top officials in the rocket forces, the military uh, arm that controls their nuclear weapons, the nuclear missiles, uh, a military court judge, the foreign minister was removed, and ostensibly he was removed because he had a child out of wedlock. Now, normally in China, that's not a big deal. Nobody really cares. The problem was his child out of wedlock was born in the United States and therefore has U.S. citizenship. So that, they thought, was maybe a potential uh, conflict of interest. He has also removed, we think, the defense minister, who has not appeared in public in many, many weeks. You know, Rick, during the Cold War, we used to call this kind of looking through the tea leaves Kremlinology. We'd look at what was going on inside the Kremlin. Today, we talk about China watchers. The truth is, we really don't know an awful lot about what's going on inside the head of President Xi or inside the leadership in communist China. So we really are looking at tea leaves. We're looking at these public events that to percolate up to the surface, but something is definitely going on. Xi has done purges before in the military. In 2017, he got rid of 100 officials. He has constantly talked about corruption as an issue. So something's going on inside the Chinese regime. I don't see this as a threat to President Xi. But we may find out it augurs a policy shift in the coming weeks. So let's keep an eye on this one. Well, we certainly will. And that's what you do so well for us. I mean, this geopolitical situation, things taking place around the world is anything but clear. It's very opaque. And, you know, you do a great job of explaining, Ken. Ken also has a website, KenTimmerman.com. You go there, you can find out about his book. He's got his memoirs there, plus other books. And also you can sign up for his newsletter that's KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Rick, and God bless. Great job as always, Rick. And Ken, you know, as we watch geopolitics around the world, we do see that it just seems like people and governments are out of control as they're making decisions. Well, Revelation 17, 17, God puts in the heart of men 
to accomplish his will. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. On Tuesday, Azerbaijan launched an offensive against separatists in Nagorno-Karabakh, an ethnically Armenian region in Azerbaijan. Just a day later, the region agreed to a ceasefire. Slava Gospel Association's Eric Mock says Nagorno-Karabakh has been cut off from aid. The people were literally blocked off from getting any food. In fact, what SGA has been doing is working with four churches in that region, in that population, that were crying out with need. And so we were helping get aid. And it's very unique because you can't get food in. And so we were actually assisting the churches in purchasing potatoes from farmers. Mock says Armenian churches are praying for peace and church unity across borders. Join us in praying with them. And after 66 years of translating, the Isnag community of the northern Philippines celebrated having a complete Bible in their own language. Stephanie de Oliveira of Wycliffe, USA, attended the Bible dedication, along with American pastors from a church that supported the project for decades. The Isnag community is a testament, along with the church here in the U.S., of working together that God's Word would be accessible to even the most remote places in the world. Through partnerships like this, Wycliffe, USA, plans to initiate translations by 2025 in the remaining language groups without a Bible. Today, we estimate close to 1,300 language communities have zero scripture at all. Join Wycliffe USA for a special celebration on October 12th to learn more about reaching every language with God's Word. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. This month, Bibles for the World is offering a 15-day Hindu World Prayer Guide and an invitation to join together in praying for them from November 5th through the 19th. Get your copy for free when you click on the banner ad at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the portion of our program where we look at news coming out of the Middle East in general, but Israel in particular. And to do that, we have our good friend with us, journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. As Ken usually says, it's a pleasure to be with you, Rick. Absolutely. Well, we'll start at the long-awaited meeting of President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu that took place this week. Can you tell us what happened? Well, of course, the background was amazing. It's been nine months and Netanyahu's been back in power, and he's the last ally of the United States whose leader Biden has met, the very last. Uh, Of course, that would have been the opposite in most administrations. The Israeli premier is one of the first, along with the British and French and German and our closest allies. But they did meet at the UN, so it wasn't a White House meeting, but they uh, had private talks as well as made some public comments. And Biden started by joking. He said, uh, who would have thought the last time we met, which was like 10 years ago when he was vice president, that uh, we'd be talking about a possible peace deal with the Saudis, you would wonder what we were drinking. And Netanyahu replied, it would be Irish whiskey. Hmm. So they both jumped and sort of a light atmosphere to begin with. Reports said they discussed, of course, Iran and the ongoing nuclear program, Israel's top priority. And also, they said they discussed a bit uh, the war in Ukraine and pressure that Israel's coming under from Ukraine to support it more openly. And, of course, they discussed this 
uh, possible pending peace deal with the Saudis, which made a lot of news. I know we're going to talk more about that in a in a minute, but that made a lot of news in throughout the world, but in the Middle East. And uh, there's no question that Netanyahu would have laid out the limits to which he believes his uh, party could go uh, in any peace deal with the Saudis and what they would demand in return. And again, there were reports that he brought up a possible U.S. security agreement with Israel as part of any deal, uh, a formal treaty. Obviously, there's informal deep relations and military relations are very developed and we have U.S. forces in Israel stationed there, etc. It was a base during the Iraq war for U.S. forces, uh, one of their bases in the region. So um, then, of course, the Saudis are reportedly asking for the same thing, a security guarantee from the U.S., not exactly a NATO style that, you know, if we're attacked at all, you have to fully come to our aid, but an understanding that there would be U.S. military protection granted to uh, the Saudis in that, in that case and the Israelis. Uh, and that would be something that Netanyahu could use to sell what would undoubtedly be a very controversial agreement uh, to his people and to his party in particular. He can't sell it to the op- to uh, the right wing of his coalition. I can talk more about that in a minute. But the talks went pretty well. And at the end, uh, Biden announced that uh, Netanyahu would be formally invited for a state meeting at the White House before the end of this year. And he didn't mean the Jewish New Year, but uh, the year 2023. So that was good news for Netanyahu and uh, shows that uh, Biden is thawing. And he undoubtedly brought up the judicial reform issue uh, Biden did. And uh, Netanyahu hopefully was able to explain to him a little more the reality on the ground that he has been talking to the opposition, that he has pulled back a lot of it and uh, maybe mollify Biden a bit. Very interesting in the way you look at this situation. There were many that were looking at this as a slight towards Prime Minister Netanyahu, especially for the government that he has put together in Israel. But in general, as far as Democrats go and as far as the left wing or the progressive party here in America, Biden himself is relatively pro-Israel. But would it be safe to say that his party and most likely any successor that's going to come in the Democratic Party after President Biden is not going to be very pro-Israel. Well, the uh, you could call it the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic uh, Party. Uh, he's Jewish, of course, but he's very anti-Netanyahu. He's made that very plain over the years. It's nothing new. But now with the more right-wing Netanyahu government, he's been speaking out more forcefully, as have pretty much all of the members of the so-called squad and the the socialist element, which is about nearly half now of the uh, Democrats in the Congress, adhere to that less in the Senate, more in the House. But still, overall, there's strong Democratic Party support for Israel. And that would be why any formal peace treaty with the Saudis, if it includes major concessions by the Israelis, which the Saudis are demanding, that it would be opposed by many uh, Democratic senators because they are very pro-Israel. Several of them are Jewish themselves, and even Chuck Schumer's pretty pro-Israel. He's a Jewish, and, and Blumenthal and others, and they have a large percentage of their votes in several big states come from Jewish voters. So, uh, you know, he would, he would have to um, 
crafted in such a way that they wouldn't oppose because a formal treaty would need to be supported by the Senate and it takes two thirds of the Senate to approve any formal American treaty with a foreign country. So that might be hard to achieve. Well, David, we've talked a little bit about the political situation from the Democratic side in the United States concerning their position on Israel. Former President Trump had a few things to say about what he has done for Israel. Yes, he posted a Rosh Hashanah greeting to the Jewish people that was addressed, and it detailed uh, all the things his administration did that were pro-Israel, moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognizing Israeli control over the Golan Heights, closing the consulate in East Jerusalem, and various other things. And then he quipped that, obviously, I am the most anti-Semitic uh, president in American history, which some have charged, you know, so he was making a joke of that. But at the top of it, like at the last minute, it seems, he added a line saying to you liberal Jews, I want to remind you that you are destroying America by basically, I'm paraphrasing, believing in lies. In other words, you supported the contention that he lost the election and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it was quite a swipe at liberal Jews. Well, the fact of the matter is, Rick, as I'm sure you know, uh, the poll shows 70 percent of American Jews are of a liberal persuasion. Almost all of them vote Democratic uh, consistently. About 30 percent are Republicans or more conservative. They're mostly Orthodox Jews in the New York area, Miami, and various other parts of Los Angeles of the country. So um, he was basically swiping uh, all of the majority of American Jews in this greeting before he listed all these accomplishments afterwards. So uh, it raised some eyebrows. And, uh, but, you know, again, he's not expecting to get many American Jewish votes in the next election if he is the nominee, and certainly didn't help to change any minds with that particular post. Well, as election season is upon us, we're going to hear more about the different candidates and how would they view Israel, so we will keep an eye on that as we ourselves are going to be making decisions when it comes to a president next year. Well, one final story, and we just have a minute here, but there was some action on the Syrian border with Israel. Can you let us know what took place there? Yes, more signs that the uh, Iranian-led opposition to Israel, if I can call it that, is growing. The Syrian military set up two temporary buildings in the no-go zone. You know about that. There's an area between the Golan Heights and Syria proper that is part of the 1974 uh, disarmament, disengagement, I should say, agreement between Israel and Syria via the United States. They didn't meet themselves. The U.S. negotiated it, and the U.N. was to enforce that, and so this is a no-build zone. Nobody should be in there either side, and here the Syrians have put two structures, just as Hezbollah did in the northern, the northern Galilee, not far away, put two tents up in uh, what is actually Israeli territory. So another sign that they're being provocative, Iran is behind that. And again, Rick, if there is any any actual deal between the Saudis and the Israelis, the Iranians are going to go literally ballistic, if you know what I mean. And we probably will see a major Middle East war. So just a warning to the Biden administration, this is a very tricky, very explosive and dangerous process you're engaged in here. And uh, the other side seems to be 
ready for war. And again, that disengagement was in the wake of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And as I said, this coming week is the 50th anniversary of that war beginning, and we could see trouble connected to that. Well, never a dull moment in the Middle East. And as we know, as students of Bible prophecy, this will only continue to escalate as we look at all of these events setting the stage for the end time events for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Well, David, we appreciate what you do to keep us informed of what's going on in Israel and around the Middle East. We look forward to talking to you again soon. And I do as well, Rick. God bless. Great job as always, David. Rick, you know what struck me? After the United Nations meeting, the foreign minister, Eli Cohen, talked about six or seven Muslim nations to make peace with Israel after the Saudis do. So that's very interesting, especially in light of Psalm 83 and the nations that come out of a meeting decide to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Well, again, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, a very important conversation with Dr. Paul Weaver and the attack against the body of Christ who believes in dispensations. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the Shepherd's Field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, we're in the midst of the fall feast, the next being the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the year. We'll talk more about that later on when we bring Steve Herzig to the program as we take a look at the book at the very end. A couple of months ago, we focused on dispensations or dispensationalism with our good friend Paul Scharf. Well, there was an attack on those that believe in dispensations and dispensationalists. Rick, you and I listened to a podcast by our good friend, Dr. Paul Weaver, and I just felt like this was something that we should focus on this week. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We do have a good friend of both yours and mine, Dr. Paul Weaver. Paul is an associate professor of Bible exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. Prior to that, he was the academic dean at Word of Life Global Bible Institute, where both you and I know him as the uh, academic dean from Hungary, the Word of Life Bible Institute in Hungary. Good friend of ours, Paul, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Uh, I think this may be my third, maybe fourth time on the program, so I'm thankful that you keep having me back. Absolutely. We're very happy to have you back when you get a chance and do know you have a busy schedule traveling all over the world, speaking at different Bible institutes. I know you're doing some things in the Middle East now, plus your your professorship there at Dallas, plus you're still doing a lot of stuff for Word of Life. You stay very busy, don't you? 
I do. I, I love to teach. I love to teach abroad. You know, my heart's still very much mission. So trying to help mobilize our students to consider overseas teaching as well as just training nationals for the work of the ministry that we're all called to do. Well, Paul, the reason we had you on this program is I certainly follow your ministry and the different things that you are doing. And you have a podcast, which is an excellent podcast. We have recommended it before, and we've talked about it on this program before, called The Bible and Theology Matters. And you talk with different guests about uh, a lot of a wide-ranging variety of topics, especially dispensationalism. Could you tell us, first of all, about this podcast and why you do it? And then after that, I I want to talk about a specific podcast that you just put out. Sure. Thank you for that question. I have the privilege of hosting a program called the Bible and Theology Matters podcast. And in it, I have a conversation with different scholars and Bible expositors about all things Bible and theology. And certainly we talk about dispensationalism and uh, end time events. And, and because as you know, almost a third of the Bible was prophetic at the time that it was written. But why do we have a podcast? Well, it's as you know, you can influence people through podcasts, through radio that you couldn't normally have in any one classroom. And so I'm thankful for that. But I'm committed to the fact and convinced that what you really believe determines how you really behave. And that's mm-hmm. our catch line, because uh, we want to help people to think biblically Because the way we think about God and his word and his works will impact the way we live. And we see that in Paul's epistles. Ephesians 1 to 3 are about the belief of the church. And chapters 4 to 6, the behavior, the the doctrine before the duty. And so we see that what we really believe impacts how we really behave. I love that. What we really believe determines how we will behave. That is so true. Great tagline. Well, uh, the one of the latest podcasts that you have done, and we're going to put it up on our website. We'll link to it. Encourage you guys to look for this however you get your podcast. But the name of the podcast is Why Albert Moeller is Wrong About Dispensationalism. And you're talking uh, to a group of scholars, talking about uh, a book review that Dr. Al Moeller did uh, with Dr. Daniel Hummel called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. Can you tell us why you did this podcast? Yeah, so this as you probably know, Dr. Al Mohler is the president of Southern Seminary and very influential. His thinking in public podcast is listened to widely. And in that interview, uh, he did interview the author of a recently released book entitled The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. And that interview included a lot of mischaracterizations, uh, logical fallacies, straw man arguments, unfortunately, very unkind and disparaging comments about dispensationalism and, quite frankly, historical inaccuracy. So within about a week time frame from when that was released, I uh, called uh, friends and uh, scholars at other dispensational schools. And so there were 10 of us in all that discussed the contents of that interview between Dr. Al Mohler and Dr. Daniel Hummel about that book. And so we just wanted to respond to and to give a a voice out there uh, that people can listen to uh, to actually correct those mischaracterizations, logical fallacies, straw man arguments. 
It was. It's very interesting. Now, I haven't watched his whole podcast, but I did in, in your podcast. You played parts of the podcast, and there was a little bit that, if you're not careful, there was a little bit that seemed disrespectful towards those that take the dispensationalist view, as you and I both do, and as this program is based on. But getting past that, I thought you guys were very uh, respectful of the fact. You even had nice things to say about Dr. Moeller, but the I think it's very important that we look at what they were talking about, what this book presents, and talking about dispensationalism. So let's get into that just for a second. We're going to go through some of the criticisms that they came through, and these aren't new, but, and so this is, I think, a great exercise for us uh, to, to share with our listeners as we go forward. But one of the first criticisms that they talk about is the fact that they say dispensationalism is a new system. It's a novelty. It's something that's only been around for a short period of time. And in their mind, that discredits dispensationalism. Can you talk about that? Sure. Indeed, this is one of those accusations that covenant theologians repeatedly bring up ad nauseum. As Dr. Charles Ryrie wrote, this accusation has been made as regularly as a dripping faucet. And it's been responded to decisively many times. So let me start by saying it is only in the relatively recent church history that theologians have attempted to understand and systematize the history of God's plans and purposes of human history. And so this is the case with dispensationalism and with covenant theology. Uh, while dispensationalism as an organized system, and I emphasize organized system because there was thought, dispensational thought before it was organized, um, but before um, or the organized system may be about 200 years old, well, covenant theology, which is the competing theological system, is only about 400 years old. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about all of church history, that's not much older. And as Dr. Snowberger, uh, who was a guest on my program from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, in our podcast, he mentioned it's like an eight-year-old girl telling her six-year-old sister that she's not very mature. <laughs> and um, so Dr. Stollard from Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry also, who is on the podcast with us, added that the Roman Catholic Church would, would level the same accusation against covenant theology, that they're the new kids on the block. So while maybe the organized system, again, emphasize organized system of dispensationalism and covenant theology is relatively new, uh, the concepts of dispensationalism clearly are not. They they go back to the apostles and the early church fathers held to much of the principles we hold to today in dispensationalism. So this, I would emphasize, old argument by covenant theologians uh, has been rebutted often, and again, I think decisively, most recently in the book edited by two friends of mine at Southern California Seminary, Dr. Corey Marsh and Dr. James Fazio, entitled the book that they recently released at the same time, uh, ironically, as this book came out, uh, it's called Discovering Dispensationalism, and it's subtitled the Tracing the Development of Dispensational Thought from the First to the 21st Century. And so we recorded a three-part podcast series with those two editors, Dr. James Fazio and Dr. Corey Marsh, on that book. And I think they decisively respond to this false claim. 
And folks, as you're listening to the program today, uh, Dr. Weaver is a scholar, and we're having a, this is going to be a scholarly discussion. Now, we're not going, and you could probably have this discussion for weeks, I'm sure, and we're not going to go into the depth that even you went to on the on the video. So I encourage our people as an exercise in learning to understand how we uh, read and understand the Bible and what what role dispensationalism plays in that. I encourage you uh, to to go listen to that video. But let's continue on. If you could give us a simple definition of dispensationalism. Sure, my simple explanation of dispensationalism, because I do believe you can state it in just a few words, or you can spend hours unpacking its death, because it in fact it's dealing with the whole Bible's understanding of history. So, as I see it. And my simple explanation, dispensationalism is an understanding of human history as recorded in the Bible regarding the plans of God in the past, in the present, and in the future that flows out of a plain, normal, literal reading of Scripture. So it's not a system per se that we want to superimpose upon the Scripture, but we believe that God is the author of language and he has revealed himself in a way that we can understand him, and he used natural laws of communication to do so. And so it starts with a literal historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture and allows us to understand the incredible grand narrative of Scripture, starting with the purpose for human history, stated in Genesis 1, 26-28, when God delegates Adam and Eve the responsibility to rule as his image-bearer, Uh, But because of sin and its consequences, it's never fully realized and won't be fully realized until the end of the book of Revelation, when Jesus Christ, the second Adam, will accomplish what the first Adam failed and will rule on the earth. And we, his image bearers, will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. So it's simply an understanding of human history from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, uh, using the natural laws of communication, the historical grammatical literal approach. That is an excellent definition, and I appreciate you sharing that. And and it's funny, if we get back to this uh, podcast that we are talking about here, some of the critiques of dispensationalism, there seems to be some contradictory critiques. The first one is that they say that dispensationalism is too complex. (laughs) That's right. Um, And several of my contributors to the program had a a lot of good feedback to respond to that accusation. For example, Dr. Christopher Cohn from Colorado Biblical University, who was on the podcast, reminded our listeners that this is a logical fallacy to presume, like Al Mohler and Daniel Hummel, that simplicity is always better. Simplicity is not always better. Dr. David Gunn from Baptist Bible Seminary then also reminded us that even if we grant the argument that simplicity is generally thought to be better, there are other aspects of a system that must be taken into consideration, primarily and first and foremost, does it explain the text of Scripture best? So Dr. Stallard then rightly argued that covenant theology with its three theological covenants, and maybe on another program we could talk about those and can give constructive criticism, but they provide three what they call theological covenants. These aren't specific covenants stated in Scripture or named in Scripture, but they're theoretical and theological, and that, in our estimation, is much more complex in our assessment. Then Dr. Scott Keene of Ethnos 360 Bible Institute reminded us that the covenantal system is, again, 
in our estimation, more convoluted because it requires you to reinterpret old prophecies, Old Testament prophecies, and covenants about Israel and the church by New Testament scripture. So it becomes more complex because you're not understanding those Old Testament prophecies, those Old Testament covenants in the way that the original readers would have understood them. You are trying to reinterpret them in light of what the New Testament authors are saying. And I don't think they contradict each other. The New Testament authors are building on not contradicting Old Testament prophecies. So this is the whole line of argument that we think is faulty on several levels. Uh, it's so important as we look at it, as you were saying, this uh, dispensationalism is not something we force upon the scriptures, but it is a way for us to look at and explain the whole scriptures from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 21. All of it fits into a plain reading. So th- that goes to the next criticism I want to talk to you about, and that is contradictory. As I said earlier, they said it was too complex. Now they're saying, well, it was created by engineers and lawyers, not uh, theologians, not enough pedigree. It's tied to church. You know, these things that they're saying almost had kind of a little bit of a snobbish effect to it. But anyways, can you talk about this? What can you say about the fact that it wasn't necessarily theologians, but engineers and lawyers helped to establish this system of dispensationalism? Yeah, I think you pinpointed that. They they were very disparaging in you know identifying uh, different individuals uh, who were engineers and and lawyers um, that helped to systematize these thoughts and 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 not trained theologians, although they were in the ministry for some of them for twenty plus years. So uh, that was very disparaging. Uh, Dr. Bookman from Shepherd's Theological Seminary pointed out the great concern with this whole interview uh, was this that. It's full of mischaracterizations and disparaging comments, sometimes mocking, and as you indicated, as you stated, some academic arrogance. Rather than wrestling with the real issues of interpretation, does the dispensational understanding provide the best explanation of God's plan and purpose for human history or not? What we're most concerned about, as Dr. John Rinker pointed out, is not pedigree, but fidelity. Not whether not whether you have the right degrees, but the right interpretations. Uh, yet, even in the same discussion, it was interesting that Dr. Moeller pointed out that there was a book written uh, many, many years ago now by Alan Russell called Voices of American Fundamentalism, where he pointed out that six of the seven most influential inerrantists and conservative theologians, those who are defending the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture against the modernists who were denying some of the fundamentals of the faith, six of those seven were dispensationalists. The only one that wasn't was Machen from Westminster Seminary, and five of those seven were graduates of Southern Seminary, the very seminary that Moeller was the president of, but none of them were taught that in their theology classes. In other words, five of them came from a seminary that did not teach dispensationalism, but six of those seven were dispensationalists, five from Southern Seminary. Uh, And so Moeller asked the question, how is it that they came to this realization? And all the guests on my panel and I, and I'm sure you and many of your listeners would say, because uh, it's the natural reading of Scripture. And so that's why it has such a strong grassroots development uh, and not so much academic down, but rather 
churches and individuals who can read the scripture and understand what the original author intended to communicate to the original recipients. And we can do that. God has communicated in a way that is clear and understandable. Well, one more critique I'd like to ask you about that they talked about. And then after that, I'd like to wrap this up by talking about uh, what's so important about dispensationalism and studying Scripture. But the next critique that they talked about was they, they're saying that dispensationalism is a fad, something that came to prominence in the 20th century and that was uh, a fad that was very popular for a little while. But even now, maybe most of the dispensational or the traditional dispensationalists are older and and it's going to be faded out. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, I would also I'd start by saying Dr. Hummel is not an unbiased historian. Now, his training is in history. He's a historian by training. But in other interviews and in the book itself, Dr. Hummel identifies and clearly states that his father was a dispensationalist. His father was trained at Dallas Theological Seminary, but that he, Dr. Hummel, was influenced or convinced by N.T. Wright uh, and others, among others, not to be dispensational. So I don't think this book is really a history. In my assessment, it's a polemic. He wants to make an argument, and so he does cherry-pick things here and there and glosses over other things to make his point. And now think with me, if if you don't believe a system, dispensationalism or any other, is the correct system, you have to explain, in his case, you have to, he has to explain how dispensationalism was so impactful. I mean, it was impactful on at a grassroots level, in churches, in mission agencies, in entire seminaries and Bible colleges, so many mission agencies, seminaries, Bible colleges that developed who were dispensational. So in his book, in my estimation, he is trying to explain how this cultural phenomenon took place if it's not really the right reading of Scripture. And so some of the things he tries to point out, and he says it's it's a fad and that it's dying out and that there's fewer and fewer dispensationalists. And I just think that's uh, just false. While there may be fewer seminaries and colleges that are choosing to be pre-tribulational and pre-millennial in their statements, and some there's a lot of other reasons for that, right? They want to have students come to their school that aren't from those. They want more students. And so there's a lot of explanations for why some schools are dropping these statements in their out of their statement of faith and churches as well. So there's it's not because dispensationalism is a fad, but rather uh, less of an emphasis upon doctrine, less of an emphasis wanting to have more students becoming more of a an education trying to reach a broader segment of Christianity more students than you would if you had such positions in your statement of faith. So dispensational schools are not all small and weaning in influence. After all, Dallas Theological Seminary is a dispensational school, and in the last two years, it has become the largest non-denominational seminary in the United States. And then there's Liberty University, which is the largest seminary in the United States, and it's uh, Baptist in its uh, affiliation. And it, too, is dispensational in statement of faith. They hold a future for ethnic Israel, believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Their statement of faith holds to a future seven-year tribulation on earth. Both Dallas Seminary and Liberty hold to a thousand-year reign of Christ. So then there are many other mid-sized and smaller dispensational schools who 
are having a much larger impact than their smaller schools might think at first glance. Just three examples we mentioned in the podcast, the National Theological College and Seminary, the the Ethnos 360 Bible Institute, the Word of Life Global Bible Institute that has 16 teaching sites around the world. There's other schools like Baptist Bible Seminary, like Appalachian Bible College, many uh, Shepherds Theological Seminary, Master Seminary. All of these are dispensational in their background, in their statement of faith. And so we haven't disappeared. Uh, we're still here. Uh, we haven't fallen as one of the chapter's titles. The collapse is one of the chapter titles in Dr. Hummel's book. And I would even argue that traditional dispensationalists, which is the variety that I would hold to. I'm a traditional dispensationalist of the Charles Ryrie variety, the Walverd, Pentecost, uh, McLean variety. Uh, there are many of us that are not old and archaic, as Hummel seemed to indicate. He said, "If I would surmise that if you go to d- dispensational schools like Dallas Seminary, they'll be in their 65s and 70s and above. And well, I'm 46, and I have at least seven other colleagues who are under the age of 65 who are uh, traditional dispensationalists. So the very one of the very reasons why I wanted to bring together these 10 different scholars, and I think eight of the 10 are under the age of 65, was just a visual representation amongst that panel to show that that one claim is just factually incorrect. I would like to add to their credit, Dr. Moeller did have a few kind things to say about uh, dispensationalism in the midst of a lot of disparaging and mocking things. But one thing he rightly pointed out is that the conservative resurgence within the Southern Baptist seminaries was really as a result of several key pastors in the Southern Baptist movement who were all dispensational. I think of Jerry Vines. I think of Adrian Rogers, I think of W.A. Criswell, I think of Charles Stanley. These were four of the uh, key components of the conservative resurgence of men who were elected to presidents, to the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention and helped to reclaim the seminaries, the very seminary that uh, Al Mohler is the president of at Southern Seminary. And so he rightly recognizes that he's indebted to these key individuals. Uh, and again, none of them were trained to be dispensational in their seminaries that they came from, but it came at, out of a natural reading and study in the, preparing to study to stand up and preach in the pulpit. And they became convinced of the dispensational approach. And so I appreciate that he made that comment and made, made note of that. And I think that's another strong argument that dispensationalism is the natural reading of Scripture. Dr. Weaver, we appreciate so much the defense of dispensationalism and your scholarly efforts to to be fair and balanced and to talk about this situation. And and, and I just want to say on, a, on another note, we've gotten into the weeds just a little bit here, and there's been a lot of scholarly talk, but I, I remember my dad, one of the things, and he always used to say it from the pulpit, he would say, if you disagree with me, don't bring your commentary, don't bring your popular literature, don't bring somebody 
else. He's like, bring the scriptures to me and let's talk about this. And people would ask him, are you a Baptist? Are you, you know, what denomination are you? And he would say, well, I'm a biblicist. He would talk about the fact that he studies the Bible. He and, uh, believes in a literal interpretation of the scriptures. And, and I appreciate this exercise of looking at dispensationalism. And it's a way uh, for us to understand God's plan, God's narrative that runs throughout the whole of scriptures, from the Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. But uh, could you speak to that just a little bit? I mean, again, I don't. I, it's not like we are, this is our team, that's your team. And, and I feel like the general discourse and the tone of your podcast was very much like that. You were like, listen, there's, there's all kinds of things we want to talk about here, and we, we want to be respectful of everybody's views, but the, the scriptures are, are preeminent. Isn't that correct? That's right. And of course, dispensationalists have been famous for that. And uh, we believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. And that is our only absolute source of truth. And so uh, I also am non-denominational. I'm I'm not of a certain particular denomination, although I have my theological convictions. And we want to say we're willing to go wherever the text leads us. And so we're not committed to a particular denomination or a particular theologian, uh, whether it's Darby or Ryrie or Burkhoff or Hodge. Right? Uh, we want to go wherever the scripture leads us, and that because that is our absolute source of truth, that's our standard, and that is the, the tradition going back to the Reformation movement. And uh, I think if um, Martin Luther and John Calvin had one more lifetime, they would be dispensational too, because <laughs> it, it, it's the it's the result of of a historical, grammatical, literal reading of Scripture, which is really what led to the Protestant Reformation. Well, one thing that Dad and always talked about is training up the next generation to understand uh, dispensationalism, to understand Bible prophecy and how important it is to get Bible prophecy right, to get es your eschatology right. And I appreciate what you are doing right now. And this is a an example of you are the kind of person that they were looking for. So we appreciate your ministry. Thank you for being on the program. And I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. Well, thank you so much, Rick. I appreciate what you and your whole team is doing for the glory of God. Great job, Dr. Weaver and Rick. As always, I think this conversation was one that the body of Christ needs to be aware of. But we're going to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. This week, we'll be focusing on the judgment seat of Christ and when it takes place and how close we are to it. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with Rick. We are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, such an important conversation that we have with Paul Weaver, Dr. Paul Weaver, on dispensationalism. Thank you for doing the hard work on that. Uh, if people wanted more information on our website, uh, where should they go? Well, Jimmy, if you go to our website, prophecytoday.com, if you missed all of that conversation, or if you want to hear it again, we have archived programs up there. You can listen to our streaming radio station. You could uh, look at our bookstore. We have many products to help you understand Bible prophecy. And of course, as always, we would love for you to support our ministry if you feel led to. Yes, that is prophecytoday.com. It's a great website if you're looking for information that will help you to further your study in Bible prophecy. 
Well, we continue to carry the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father, and today we're going to conclude our study on the judgment seat of Christ. You know, the Bible tells us that all Christians will stand at the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for the works that we have done for the Lord after we got saved. By the way, our rewards determine our service for the Lord in eternity future. The judgment seat of Christ happens at the moment after the rapture, and the rapture could happen at any moment. We must be ready for the rapture, Rick, and the judgment seat of Christ. Your question may be, how close are both of these events? Well, that's our study today. Please go to Ezekiel chapter 37 as we determine how close we may be to the judgment seat of Christ. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. How close are we to that judgment seat of Christ? Go back to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel. And go to chapter 37. Let me show you three little evidences of how close we are. I'm not going in depth on any of these topics that I'm going to give you. I'm going to simply introduce it to you and let you then work it out in your study. Ezekiel chapter 37. You know Ezekiel 37 is the time when Jesus Christ appears to the prophet Ezekiel. He takes him to a valley full of dry bones. There in the valley of dry bones, he asks Ezekiel a very interesting question. Can these bones live again, Ezekiel? I love the answer. Notice here, notice here in verse 3. The Lord asks Ezekiel, he calls him the son of man, that's his name. He's asking Ezekiel, can these bones live? And he said unto me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, thou knowest. Like, God, why are you wasting your time asking me about these bones if they can live? You know the answer. Why are you asking me that question? And then you know what the Lord says without beating a beat? Hey, Ezekiel, I want you to preach, man. Preach to the bones. Now, can you imagine preaching to a valley of dry bones? But old Ezekiel started to preach. And all the bones started coming together. And old Ezekiel said, man, that's pretty good preaching. Hallelujah. God said, preach on, Ezekiel. And he preached on. Skin came flying out of the sky and covered these bones. And God said, you're not finished preaching. Preach to the wind. And he preached to the wind. And the wind came down and filled these flesh-covered bones. And they stood up like a mighty army. Look what the text says. Verse 7. And so I prophesied. I was commanded. And I prophesied. And there was a noise. And behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to his bone. That's the regathering of these bones. Verse 8. And when I beheld, lo, the sinew and the flesh came upon them. And the skin covered them from above. But there was no breath in them. That's the re-restoration of these bones. In verse 9. And then he said unto me, prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man. Verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came in unto them. And they lived. And they stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. By the way, that is apocalyptic literature if you did not recognize it already. The Lord is using a symbol to communicate an absolute truth. The bones coming together, the flesh on the bones, the breath of life being breathed into these flesh-covered bones. Now, what's the principle for interpreting a piece of apocalyptic literature? Keep reading the Word of God. We read through verse 10. Look at verse 11. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. What he's talking about here, he's telling Ezekiel, Ezekiel, the bones are the Jewish people scattered to the four corners of the earth 
for 2,000 years. You preach. There will be a regathering and these bones will come together. Keep on preaching. Preach the skin down and these skin will come and cover these bones that have connected. And that's the restoration of a Jewish state. And then he said, preach unto the wind. Let the wind fill these flesh-covered bones. That's the regeneration of the Jewish people. All in the program of God. And this has been happening. May I tell you one incident? I could give you thousands. One incident. May the 24th, 1991. Judy and I have been living for five months in Jerusalem. We're both fully credentialed journalists. A journalist listens to other news gathering organizations to make sure he's on top of all the news. I would always choose to listen to the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation. And so it's a Friday afternoon, May the 24th. Shabbat is about to begin. All of a sudden, I hear the broadcaster say, Operation Solomon is underway. I found out what Operation Solomon was. 42 aircraft took off from Ben-Gurion Airport. Flew across southern Israel, the Red Sea, northern Africa, into Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Meanwhile, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, 15,000 Jews had made their way to the airport. In the next 24 hours, the greatest airlift to ever happen in the world, they airlifted all 15,000 in 24 hours back to Israel. At one time, there were 28 planes in the air. One 747 carries about 500 people. They took out all the seats. They put 1,087 people on that airplane. While the plane was flying from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, into Jerusalem, while the plane was in the air, seven babies were born on the airplane. They landed in Jerusalem. They went to this one location. Judy said to me, honey, they're getting ready to eat downstairs. Why don't we go help them? And so we went downstairs. Here are these thousands of Ethiopians. In front of them, a plate with a boiled egg, a container of yogurt, olives and cucumbers and tomatoes and just normal Israeli fare. They didn't know what to do. You remember, the Ethiopians were starving. One of the reasons for that 24-hour airlift to get them into Israel is so they could sustain life. They didn't know what a boiled egg was. And so I walked up to this old man. I took the boiled egg, cracked it, peeled it, showed him how to eat it. And it started to catch on. I went over to this lady, had a baby strapped on her back. I carefully opened the yogurt container, took a spoon, started feeding the baby, started feeding her. And that started to catch on. And while I was standing there, the tears were streaming down my cheeks. Because I thought of Zephaniah chapter 3, where it says... In the end times, I will reach into Ethiopia. I will get my prize and bring him to Jerusalem. We were touching the fulfillment of prophecy. Out of 108 nations of the world, these Jews have been coming into the land. Bones regathered. Flesh on the bones. The process of regeneration. Hey, look here at the next thing, verse 15. And then the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah, and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them one unto another into one stick, and they shall become one in thy hand. Here's what Ezekiel's told to do. Take two sticks. On one stick, put Judah. On the other stick, put Israel. And then take the two sticks and put them in your hand. And while the two sticks in your hand, the two sticks will become one. 
Now, many prophecy teachers and commentators have said what that's talking about is the ten lost tribes. They're out there someplace. The two tribes of Judah, Benjamin and Judah, they're already in Israel. Those ten lost tribes are going to be found in the last days that will be joined together with those two tribes of Judah. That is not correct because there's no such thing as ten lost tribes. No such thing according to the Word of God. Mark it down. Book of Ezra, chapter 2. Remember Ezra 1, Cyrus is raised to allow the Jews to return to the land and build their temple. Chapter 2, it lists the 49,897 Jews that came back. They list their families and where they lived. You study them. And they are parts of all 12 tribes. Once the temple is built, Ezra chapter 6, they have a dedicatory service. In that dedicatory service, you know what they do? They sacrifice 12 he goats for the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jesus Christ is sending his disciples out, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, he says, Don't go to the Gentiles, verse 6. Go to the whole house of Israel. Why? Because the whole house of Israel, all 12 tribes were back in the land. When you come over to Acts chapter 2, verse 5, on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews from every nation of the world in Jerusalem for that feast day. All 12 tribes are back in the land. They've been back in the land for over 2,500 years. So what is this prophecy talking about? What this is teaching in the future, after the rapture of the church, there will be two Jewish states. In my briefcase, I have a constitution for the state of Judah. On the phone less than an hour ago, I was talking to one of the major players, Rabbi Yoel Karen, who's responsible for putting the infrastructure together for the second Jewish state called Judah. He works for Baruch ben Joseph, one of the leading attorneys in Jerusalem, who was the man quoted by the Jerusalem Post, not some prophecy book, the Jerusalem Post. And he said this, the only solution we have to the Gentile world wanting to destroy the Jewish, they're going to form a second Jewish state, Judah. It's ready right now. One more thing, chapter 35. Chapter 35 is a judgment against Mount Seir. You need to study chapter 35 sometime. Who is Mount Seir? 36th chapter of the book of Genesis says Mount Seir is where God sent Edom. 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 Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. And in their mother's womb, God told Rebekah, there will be two nations in your womb. Jacob becomes Israel. Esau, he becomes the father of the Palestinian people. I can trace it from Esau to the Palestinian people today. Look what it says. Here's the reason they're going to be judged. Verse 5. Because thou hast a perpetual hatred and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword. They're the ones that went to live in Mount Seir. Look at verse 10. Because thou hast said, notice this, these two nations, Judah, Israel, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will possess it whereas the Lord was there. This is a prophecy of the Palestinian people. Malachi chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 49 and also the little book of Obadiah says these people will come back. 
Today on my radio broadcast, I talk with the man who watches the Palestinian media. I ask him about the Palestinians, listen, setting their own borders as we speak. The borders for their Palestinian state. You know what Malachi 1 says? They'll return. They'll rebuild. And I'll call their borders the borders of wickedness. The Jews from around the world gather in Israel. The land of their forefathers. He gives it to them. They will come from every place. But because of world political leaders, they'll divide into two states. And the Palestinians will rise up to kill them and to take those two states. That happens right after the rapture. After the judgment seat of Christ. That's how close we are to that event. Better be making preparations for that time. We must be preparing for the judgment seat of Christ. It follows the rapture. And according to our study in Ezekiel today, the rapture could happen at any moment. Then the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is going to be an awesome time. Please make ready for it today. Next week, we'll begin a brand new study. We'll answer the question, where is the United States in Bible prophecy? Please don't miss this study. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk to Steve Herzig with Friends of Israel. We're in the midst of the three fall feasts, the next one being Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. This week's forecasts predict rain and the heightened risk of landslides in Marrakesh, Morocco. Makeshift shelters in tent cities offer little protection to the survivors of the historic earthquake. Voice of the Martyrs Canada's Riyad Jabala says Morocco's rules forbid Christians from delivering aid in the name of Jesus. However, today's compassionate care could lead to gospel conversations later. Pray believers can connect with survivors who need to know God's love. Turning now to Ethiopia, a recent gospel gathering in Addis Ababa equipped Christian leaders to change their continent. Believers from more than 50 nations met for the annual Every Home for Christ conference. They discussed post-pandemic changes and new techniques for ministry. World Missionary Press partners with Every Home for Christ to give gospel workers across Africa the tools they need for ministry. Learn more and find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. 
be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, as I said at the outset of the program, this is a program about Yom Kippur. We are in the midst of the three fall feasts. There are four spring feasts, and incidentally, Jesus Christ fulfilled each of those four spring feasts. That would be Passover. Christ was crucified on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, which is the next feast. Then the feast of first fruits. He rose again on the feast of first fruits and the feast of weeks or Pentecost, which is when the church began. And that occurred 50 days after the beginning of the feast of unleavened bread. So we are looking at Jesus fulfillment of the four spring feasts. There are three fall feasts, trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles. And Jesus Christ will fulfill the three fall feasts, beginning with Rosh Hashanah, which is when Jesus Christ returns to the earth and regathers the Jews that are in the wilderness, brings them to the city of Jerusalem. Then you have the day of atonement, which is fulfilled, Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus Christ brings those into the city of Jerusalem, he judges them, Gentiles and Jews. That would be the judgment of the sheep and the goats and the five wise and five foolish virgins. That would be that day of atonement, that time when those that have accepted Christ and looked upon Jesus, the one that they pierced, those Jews and Gentiles from the tribulation period will go into the millennial kingdom. And that's the Feast of Tabernacles that is fulfilled at the millennial kingdom. This dispensation that we're in now is the sixth dispensation. The one in which we now live is a dispensation of grace. And Rick, after our conversation with Dr. Paul Weaver, we know how important it is to have an understanding of the dispensations of the Bible. But during this period of the fall feast, we want to talk to our good friend, Steve Herzig. Steve Herzig is the North American Ministries Leader for Friends of Israel. Steve Hoxamaic, and welcome to the program. Steve, these holidays are very important to the Jewish people, but there's a significance to us as believers, correct? Yes, they are, Jimmy, and happy holidays to you. Yes. The fall feasts are extremely important. Rosh Hashanah kicks off the civil new year. It's significant. Jewish people are thinking about their past year and, oh, what a year it's been, huh, Jimmy? And then they'll be thinking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and, of course, Tabernacles. So, yes, this is a very important time on the Jewish calendar. You summarized it really well, Jimmy. The first is Rosh Hashanah. Yes, a greeting is, may your name be inscribed in the Book of Life. What a wonderful greeting. What a wonderful thing that is. There's a concern. Hey, will you? Will your name be in the Book of Life, or will it be in the Book of Judgment? A looking forward to what kind of year next year is going to be. And so at Rosh Hashanah, People are analyzing their life, and I know you and I have talked in the past. You've actually had Jewish people come and and apologize to you for something they uh, might not have meant to do, but they realize they did, and they want to make it up. They want to repent and ask forgiveness. That goes on at Rosh Hashanah. Then 10 days later, these 10 days of awe, as people 
begin to analyze what they might have done wrong, the sins that they have committed. They repent of them because Yom Kippur is not, may your name be inscribed in the Book of Life, your name will be sealed in one of those books, the Book of Judgment or the Book of Life. And everyone wants to be sealed in the Book of Life. And so on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they will fast and they will pray and they will give charity, which, by the way, comes from a Talmudic story where the temple is burning in 70 A.D., and the rabbi and a student is there, and the student says to the rabbi, Rabbi, our people are fleeing, our temple is done, what are we going to do? We won't have sacrifices. And the rabbi says, from now on, we'll fast, we'll pray, and we'll give charity. Well, those things are all good, but they're not in the Bible to atone for sins. And so the Day of Atonement is a day that we as believers can sit, look at and say, boy, have I, have I trusted in the only path, the only way to be saved? And then five days later, the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when God sets up his kingdom. The Messiah has come and the kingdom is here. For Jewish people, Tabernacles is a reminder of his faithfulness to them as they were journeying in the, in the desert and wandered around. A 10-day journey turned out to be 40 years long, but eventually they go into the promised land, and, and we as Christians say, well, first we have to repent, then we understand that Jesus paid the price for us, and then we understand that we're absent from the body or raptured, and then we're present with the Lord Jesus and co-rulers with him, as you will, being, being servants of his during the thousand-year rule where the kingdom will be an amazing thousand years. So these three feasts are really a culmination of the program of God. It's an exciting time. It's a real exciting time, Jimmy. Steve, as we approach the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, I want Christians to understand we bring you to this program so that you're able to teach us about the Jewish feast. But the feasts are for the Jewish people. One final question for you. We always ask this one. Steve, tell us how we can best, from a practical perspective, approach our Jewish friends during these feast days and tell them and relate to them about Jesus. Jimmy, these particular days are so unique where people are, many people are afraid, they're concerned. The best way for those of us who have Jewish friends, people we're concerned about, is number one, give them a call, ask them how they are, especially for those who might be shut in. Number two, if you can possibly give something to them, a basket, a fruit basket of some kind, a card, a greeting to them to encourage them and let them know that you're praying for them and concerned about them, especially during these difficult days. It's, it's great that we can find ways to connect with them, even if it's phone call or by mail, email, and let them know that we care, especially as they're about to celebrate their Day of Atonement and for Tabernacles as well. Steve, thank you so very much, my good friend, and always great talking to you at this time of the Jewish feast. And we will wait for the next ones, upcoming in the spring probably. That will be the time when we get back together again. But thank you, my good friend, Hoxamaic. Have a blessed holidays as well. Jimmy, thanks so much. Always great to be with you. Rick, another great program. And let me leave this one last thought with us all as we finish today. When Christ sacrificed himself on the cross, he appeased God's wrath against sin, taking the wrath upon himself, Romans 5, 9. With all that we've seen this week, we can't help but say the rapture of the church is not far away. Let's keep looking up 
until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.